we're going to be looking at those last two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening. When you think about false teachers, what sort of a person springs into your mind? I expect for most, you've got a caricature of a false teacher. Perhaps it might be for you the um, some, some really crazy guy, the lunatic down in the park, who, who's shouting at every innocent passerby, warning them of Jesus' imminent return next Wednesday, 5pm. This is the kind of false teacher that you ought to steer clear of. Perhaps others are you a bit more rational in your caricature, but you generally think of uh, those in the cults, those like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who come knocking on your door. Or perhaps others of you have had more experience with the prosperity gospel. And for you, when you think about a false teacher, it's those men in their Armani suits with gold rings and bracelets dripping off their hands. Uh, those, to you, are the caricature of a false teacher. When we read these verses from 1 Timothy, as uh, John has helpfully pointed out to us, Paul is warning Timothy to guard against the false teaching that can infiltrate the church. When you think about the false teaching that can attack you, where is that false teaching going to come from? If your understanding of what a false teacher is, is limited to those simple caricatures, or those, those groupings of perhaps prosperity gospel, the cults, or the Lone Rangers, then really, when you come to think about it, how much risk are you at of false teaching? Are you at any risk at all? How often, really, do you come into contact with those, those people? Now, I'm not denying there that there, those people are a risk, and they are false teachers. But realistically, in your life, how much of a risk are you uh, how, much, how much risk are you at of being, uh, of being persuaded by those sorts of people? What I want to do this evening, as we consider these verses from 1 Timothy, and Paul's charge to Timothy to watch out for the false teachers and to guard the truth that he's been given, I want us to have another think about where might we face false teaching? Where might that, those attacks come from? Uh, what direction do we need to be guarding ourselves from? if we're going to protect against the false teaching of this age. Okay, so let's have a look at these verses. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Paul's instruction is disarmingly simple. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, I want to take some time to really make sure we understand what Paul is saying to Timothy in order that we can then understand what God is saying to us through this word. What is Paul saying to Timothy? What is it that has been entrusted to Timothy's care? Specifically, what has been entrusted? I think actually there's a little bit of ambiguity there. It's not, it's not immediately obvious uh, what Paul is referring to, what, what has been entrusted. If you read back through the letter, there's all sorts of things that, that Timothy has been given. He's been given, for example, the gift of preaching and teaching. Is this the thing that Paul means that has been entrusted to Timothy's care? In chapter 1, we read, John read for us, how Timothy had been given a task to do. Timothy had been given a task to stay in Ephesus and to warn the false teachers. Is that what has been entrusted to him? Similarly, as the leader of that church in Ephesus, Timothy has been given the people in the church to care for and to look after. Chapter 5 of this letter really goes into detail about how Timothy needs to be getting involved in the, in the details of these people's lives. 
caring for them, guiding them, instructing them? Is it the people that have been entrusted to Timothy? I would say what Timothy has been entrusted with, and I think really this is the the thing that Paul's most got in mind, is not his gift, not his task, not the people. What Paul's got in mind is most likely the gospel message. It's the message that has been given to Timothy that he has got to now guard. I think it's a message because that makes more sense if you go on reading the next verses. Turn away from godless chatter, opposing ideas, things falsely called knowledge. So he's contrasting the thing that has been entrusted to Timothy with things like ideas and knowledge. Now, it wouldn't make sense for it to be a task or a people uh, that Timothy had been entrusted with. It makes more sense if it's the, the gospel message, the truth that Paul taught to Timothy that Timothy could then go and pass on to other people. Paul tells Timothy, the gospel message that you have is the gospel message that has been entrusted to you. It has been given you. You have it there in its totality. Timothy, you are not on a journey of development, trying to understand and piece together what the gospel is. You have been handed the gospel. And your role now, Timothy, is to pass that gospel on to others. Therefore, guard it. Guard it. Now, there's two ways that I see you can guard something. You can guard a prisoner. If you're guarding a prisoner, what what you're trying to do, you're trying to keep him in his cell, not let him out. You're trying to stop others coming to see him. You're guarding him, you're protecting him. You're keeping him secret, separate, hidden away. That's one way to guard things, like you might guard a prisoner. But there's another way to guard things, like you might guard, for example, a building, or a palace, or the border of a country. Now what you do when you're guarding a border is you're not trying to keep the country secret, you're not trying to stop anyone from knowing anything about it. Actually, as you guard that border, what you're intending to do is let people in and out, let people cross that border. But what you want to do is stop the passage of those who are coming to attack. So your your guarding is there to not keep everyone out, but only keep those out who are seeking to do damage. And I think what Paul's telling Timothy to do is guard the message that has been entrusted to you. Not in the sense that you keep it secret, don't let anybody know about it, don't make sure make sure nobody knows about, about this, make sure it doesn't spread. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, guard it, share it, teach it to others, but protect it, preserve it. Keep it safe from the attack of those who wish to do it damage. Make sure that what you go on teaching people is the very same message that I first taught to you. Why is this Paul's closing charge to Timothy? Because... As we read from chapter 3, the heart of this letter, the key verse, the thing that everything in this letter hinges on and stems from, is the truth of what the church is. Chapter 3, verse 15, the church is God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Everything in 1 Timothy flows from that idea that the church is the pillar of truth, It's here to hold the truth high up on a pillar so that everyone can see it. It is the foundation of truth. 
It's the place where truth is protected and preserved and kept pure. So as you go through 1 Timothy, you read about the, the importance of the people submitting to the authorities, praying for the authorities. Why? Because the church is intended to be a pillar of the truth, to show the world how good this gospel message is. So in your relations to the outside world, don't be a hindrance to that message, but be promoters of it. Uh, you, you see how Paul instructs uh, Timothy to tell people to take care of their families, to work hard, to not be driven by money, but to be driven by godliness. All reasons which, which cause the church and the people in the church to be exemplary in their lives. So that when people look at this truth that is held up high on the pillar, that the church proclaims, they won't be driven away from it. They will have no opportunity for slander, as Paul says. But they will be drawn towards it. The church is the pillar of truth. The church is the foundation of truth. And so for that reason, in this letter, Paul's saying, look, Timothy, you've got to get some elders appointed, some men who can understand this truth, who can teach it, reliably, trustworthily. Protect this truth that has been handed on to you. False teachers, they've got to be driven out of the church. Teach them the error of their ways. Show them where they're going wrong. But don't show them twice. Put them out of the church if they're doing damage to the congregation. And Timothy, the example of your life should be an example for all the believers to follow. Make your life an example that others can follow. The truth of this gospel needs to be passed on. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Guard this truth that you have been given. Now, there's many differences between Timothy's situation and our situation today. We've no longer got Timothy himself with us, have we, of course. We're many thousands of miles across the globe. The 21st century looks very different to the 1st century. But God's design for the church has not changed. Just like in the first century, the church was designed to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. Today, the church continues to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. Our task is still to hold up high and to preserve the same gospel message that Paul passed on to Timothy, that Timothy passed on to the Ephesians, that has been passed on down the generations to you and to me. Do you ever talk about yourself being on a, a journey of faith? Be careful of that sort of language. Be careful. There are ways in which we are on a journey. We are on a journey of discovery, say. We're on a journey of understanding. We might have questions that we want answering, that we've not yet found the answer to but we're not on a journey of development. You're not hopping from place to place, picking out the best parts of the the different ideas that you come across. You're not developing a God for you to worship. You're not developing a gospel for you to follow. What you're trying to do, if you are on a journey of faith, is to grow in your understanding of the truth. The truth that Timothy received from Paul, who received it from Christ. You're you're trying to grow in your understanding of the faith which the church has protected and preserved and held high for generations. 
You might say, well, well surely even the language of, of journeying or, or developing or growing, surely that implies some kind of development and some sort of experimentation. No, not at all. Yes, the New Testament does talk about growing. And you could argue that that talks about that growing implies development. But again, when the New Testament talks about growing, it's growing in your faith. Growing in your knowledge. Not growing a new thing for yourself. Growing in your faith of what already has been revealed. And you might ask, well, what about interpretation? Surely, as you've already pointed out, this letter was written to Timothy many thousands of years ago. Uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, and today in the 21st century, we've got to interpret it so that we can understand how, how we ought to live. Isn't that process of interpretation potential for change, development, difference? No, not at all. We do interpret God's word, but what we mean when we talk about interpreting is is not that we're trying to bring some, some new, modern, unique meaning to God's word. What we're doing when we're interpreting is we're trying to understand what did Paul originally mean to Timothy? What was their intentions then? What was the gospel message back then? Interpreting the Bible is trying to work out what was the gospel stated to be in these documents. That's what interpretation is. What does the Bible say the gospel is? What is the truth that the Bible is trying to tell us? And it's that truth. Once we grasp hold of that, that's the truth that we are then trying to live out in our own lives today. We're not developing a truth for ourselves. We're seeking to grab hold, to guard, to hold up the truth that has been handed down to us. There's no other way to know God except by accepting his revelation to us. And for that reason, we must guard this truth. We must protect it from attack. The church is the foundation of this truth, the preserver. And so those within the church have a responsibility to make sure the message they pass on is the same message that they have received. Now you might think that's very pertinent for you up there stood at the front. Yes, it is. In this role, teaching others... It's important that what I pass on to you is the same as what has been passed on to me, which is the same as what has been passed on in God's word. But it's not just a command to me. Yes, I am teaching. Yes, Joseph is teaching and passing on this gospel message. But think as well, there are others in the church. Those who, for example, are leading home groups. Or those who are leading Bible studies with other people, seeker studies. Those people have a responsibility to make sure the message they pass on is the message that we have received. Also, you could think about the people who are doing Sunday school, who are teaching the children. The message that they pass on in those classrooms ought to be the same message that we have received. They also need to take note of this command. Guard that truth that you've been given. Guard it. Protect it from attack. Well, if it's those who are teaching in the classrooms, what about those who have children in their own families? If you are a parent, or if you are a grandparent, you also have this responsibility to guard that truth that has been passed on to you. Or what about if you use biblical, uh, if you, you use scriptures in your conversations with other Christians to build one another up, to encourage each other, to spur one another on in the faith? Or you also to 
guard the message that has been given to you, to make sure that when you pass it on in those conversations, you're passing on the very same truths that others have received. And when you're speaking to non-Christians, those outside the church, don't you also have a responsibility to make sure the message you pass on is an accurate representation of the message that we have received? Have I missed anybody out there? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? This command is not just a command for those leading the church. It's not just a command for those who are teaching. And although 1 Timothy as a, as a whole, yes, is a letter to Timothy, it's also intended to be a letter to the churches. It was intended to be read out to them. There are a number of times where Paul addresses in this letter, not just Timothy as the individual, but Timothy as a church. This command doesn't just come to Timothy. It comes to each of us within the church. Because you see, when Paul said the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, he said it's the church that is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Not the apostles. Not the elders. It's not the elders who are holding up and protecting the word of truth. It's the church. The church is a body. And we all have a responsibility. We all have a role to play in guarding this truth that has been passed on to us. And so the command that God speaks to you this evening is guard, protect, preserve the truth that has been passed on to you. Now that begs the question, from where are we likely to see attacks on this truth? From where are we likely to see attacks on the gospel message that has been passed down to us? Now I want to go back for a moment and and reference those caricatures that we brought up at the beginning. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, other Christian cults who start with God's word and then distort it or add to it or remove from it or change it in very subtle ways sometimes. And you think, oh, well, they're, they're not too much of a risk because they meet in other buildings and um, I don't often come across them. Don't be so confident in your safety. There are enough people in this congregation, here in this membership at this church, who will tell you the damage that those cults can do. How subtly and how carefully they can weave their way into people's lives. So first I would say don't underestimate those cults which teach false things from God's word. But also there are other attacks on our faith. And I would say that actually for most of us, our main exposure to the attacks on our faith doesn't come from those cults and the, and the prosperity gospel preaching. It comes from other sources. And here are five ways in which the gospel, the truth that has been passed on to us, is often attacked. Now these five, they're not exhaustive ways, it's not all the ways, but it's just five ways that you might consider how is the gospel attacked today. First, there is pressure for Christians to compartmentalise their life. For the gospel to be a message about your Sundays and your evenings and your personal time, but not a whole life situation. There is pressure for you to... For you to uh, it, it's fine for you to be a Christian at home and at the weekends and in your family and in your own time, but don't bring your Christianity into the workplace. Don't bring your Christianity into the school. Don't bring your Christianity into your university research. Keep it away. Keep it separate. 
that pressure diminishes the gospel. It makes it no gospel at all if it's allowed to succeed. It means that the new birth becomes no longer a new birth, but just a new hobby. It means that a Christian is not someone who's given their whole lives to Christ. It's someone who just gives their evenings and weekends to him. That's no gospel at all. That's not the truth that was passed on down to us. That's a pressure from which the gospel is under attack. There is a pressure for the gospel to bow the knee to other idols. It's fine, for example, if the gospel serves the idol of the environment. So long as your gospel talks about the stewardship that God has given to mankind to care for the earth and to nurture it and to use it sensibly and to manage it well, then no problem. You can keep your gospel and you can talk about it even if you want. Because your gospel is now serving my idol, the environment. Or perhaps um, the idol of individuality. It's fine for your gospel to be preached and shared so long as it's preached and shared in a way that encourages people to live out their dreams, to be the best person they can possibly be. As long as the gospel is a, is a self-help guide or a motivational tool, no problem. Keep preaching it. Keep sharing it. Keep it yourself. But as soon as it becomes a message about sinfulness and about the need of a saviour and about the need to repent and about the coming judgment, no, 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 cut it off, stop there. There is pressure for the gospel to bow the knee to other idols. Third, there is pressure for the gospel to call for less than a whole life commitment from followers of Jesus. Now this is slightly different to the first one. What I mean on this one is this. Sometimes when churches want to be seen to deal favourably or gently with seekers or people who are just questioning Christianity, what they might do is, uh, is, is they make a message that, that sounds exceptionally inclusive, but it does not make the demands on a person that Jesus makes. Ultimately, it does not demand for them to repent of sin and turn and follow Christ. And so this is a type of gospel that is preached but without the demand for people to um, turn from sexual sin or to turn from greed or for people to uh, commit to Christ but then without any accountability in the way that they use their money or in the way that they pursue money or in the way that they use their time. It fails to present the fullness of Christ's call on the lives of his disciples. There is a pressure for the gospel to be made subjective and therefore silenced. The gospel's fine for you, but not everybody needs Jesus. This was perhaps highlighted most strongly a few, uh, 18 months back. You might remember John Allen Chow, who went to the Andaman Islands just off the coast of India uh, as a Christian missionary to try and reach the, the last unreached tribe on earth, some claim. And he was killed when he was doing so. And it became a, there was a media storm around it and Christian missions made the, the front page of the headlines. And this is what the world said. It said, John Allen Chow is not a martyr. He's just a dumb American who thought the tribals needed Jesus. When actually the tribals already lived in harmony with God and nature for years with outside interference. That was the message of the world. 
Now, you can keep your gospel message. Other people don't need it. The shock was that the same message was even affirmed and presented and argued for by churches. Saying, this man's done the wrong thing. Not just done it in an unhelpful way, but he's been doing the wrong thing. He did not need to go to those islands. When the gospel bows to that pressure, it means that if, if those people don't need Jesus, then do I even need Jesus? If those people don't need a saviour for forgiveness from their sins, do, do I need Jesus as my saviour from the forgiveness of my sins? It's a pressure to make the gospel subjective. One rule for you, but another rule for others. And there's a pressure, fifthly, for the gospel to become utilitarian. For people to be measured on the value of what they can contribute to society. And so, so long as the gospel helps you to improve yourself, so long as the gospel gives you means and opportunity to to serve in society, so long as the gospel brings you into a a community service type, type of thing, you can help out at kids' clubs, you can help the old ladies in the nursing home, whatever else it might be, then yeah, that's, that's fine. Keep your gospel and promote it as best you can. But when the gospel becomes utilitarian in that way, when the value of a life is measured on what you can contribute to society, then this in turn either breeds despair for those who are unable through either ill health or old age or other issues. It either breeds despair that they're not able to perform in the ways that people want them to perform. Or it breeds self-righteousness. I am performing. I am doing these things. Anti-good, anti-fantastic. Now these attacks don't come shouting at us from the rooftop with a big proverbial label around their belly saying heretic or heresy. They creep in through, through all sorts of avenues. They creep in through the culture, just through the way people talk and speak. They creep in through news articles and the comment sections at the bottom of news articles. They creep in through films and what is presented as a hero and what is presented as a villain. They creep in in the way that government policies are designed and presented. And they seek to bring us all under their influence. And our role as the church of God is to be on our guard for such false teaching in order that we might protect and preserve the teaching that has been handed down to us. Be on your guard. Guard against the attacks of false teaching. How are we to do that? Well, Paul says to Timothy, the answer, the way you do it is really quite simple. Chapter 6, verse 20. Turn away from godless chatter. Turn away from the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Turn away from them. Don't dabble in them. Don't feel the need to fully understand them, to to dwell in them, to saturate yourself in them in order to be able to argue back, in order to be informed, in order to feel like one of the crowd. Turn away from them. Don't give them an inch or else they will take a mile. Warn the people not to devote themselves to myths and genealogies. 
They're not there for building your faith. They're just there to promote controversy. Timothy, have nothing to do with old wives' tales. Don't put too much stock, Timothy, in your physical health. It's useful, but it's not everything. You see, this command that that Paul closes with, it's not just a, a passing remark to add on to the end of an otherwise useful letter. This command that Paul gives to Timothy is woven throughout the letter. Timothy, be on your guard. Have nothing to do with these false ideas. And understand this, that these false ideas, they don't look deceptive from a distance. In fact, often they look appealing. They look sensible. They look worthwhile. They are called knowledge, although they're falsely called knowledge. The sorts of people who promote these ideas are, from chapter 6, the people who have got lots of wealth behind them. Because while they're promoting these ideas, they're chasing the wealth. They've got status. They've got influence. It's the people from the institutions, from the governments, who have status in society. It's those people who are pushing these ideas. And perhaps not even pushing them at times. Just presenting them. Trying to draw people towards them. Be on your guard. They won't always be labelled as deceptive. And sometimes they'll start in a good place. Those myths and genealogies that Paul refers to back in the first chapter, those were likely myths and genealogies from the Old Testament. People had started with God's word. They'd started with scripture. They'd started in a good place. They'd started with the laws of God and how we ought to interpret them and how we ought to use them and live by them. They'd started with what was good. But they'd strayed from the path. And they'd made those other things, those things, everything. And in so doing, some have professed them, and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Those who have accepted them have allowed those other things to become their profession. That is what they talk about. That is the centre of their idea. That is their main message. That is their profession. The things that they speak most highly of is these false and opposing ideas. What's our profession? What's the profession of the church? What's the truth that we're holding on the pillar? Paul summarises it in chapter 1. It's the verse that we've been learning here with the children on Sunday mornings. This is a trustworthy saying. This is the truth, Timothy that I've passed on to you and that you ought to pass on. This is a trustworthy saying and it deserves full acceptance. So hold it up high on that pillar. Make sure everyone can see it. It deserves full acceptance by every man, every woman, every child on the face of this earth. It deserves that acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. That's the truth. That's the centre of your message. That is what you are focused on. That is what you are preaching. That is what you are presenting to the world. That is what your life revolves around. That is the truth that you are protecting from any attack. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Do you recognise that you're a sinner? If you don't, you've not understood that truth. Do you recognise that you need saving from the judgement that is coming? If you don't, you've not recognised that truth. 
Do you recognize that Jesus came for the purpose of saving you from that judgment? Paying your penalty. And that the only way you can escape, the only way you can be saved, is by trusting Christ. If you don't understand that, you've not understood this truth. You've not grasped this truth that has been passed on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the truth that the church holds high. And any other philosophy, any other profession, any other idea that might be called knowledge, those things are in opposition to this truth that we proclaim and we profess. And notice also that because this is the centre of our profession, this is the centre of our truth, this is really all that we profess. If we profess anything else, it must stem from this. It doesn't replace it, it doesn't add to it, it must be drawn from it. This is what we profess. And so if we find ourselves, either individually or as a church, centering our profession on anything other than that truth, then we find that perhaps we're no longer preaching the truth that was handed down to us. Perhaps even we've wandered from the faith. Listen carefully as I say this. We preach Christ crucified, not six-day creationism. We preach Christ crucified, not a particular view on spiritual gifts. We preach Christ crucified, not a particular preacher or a particular church or a particular branch of theology. We preach Christ crucified, not the importance of pro-life and anti-abortion lawmaking. We preach Christ crucified, not the traditional definition of marriage. We preach Christ crucified, not the importance of freedom of speech or even freedom of religion. We preach Christ crucified, not the ethical treatment of animals, the importance of physical exercise, the standards of sex education in our schools, or any other thing that might detract or knock Christ off the centre of our profession. Now, I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm not saying that they're unhelpful. I'm not even saying that they're untrue. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in those things. I'm saying they are not our profession. They are not the thing that the church holds high and presents to the world. They are not the thing that the church rallies round in order to protect and preserve. The thing we give ourselves for, the thing we hold out to to our neighbours, to our friends, to our families, is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. That is the centre of our profession. And if we've let other things become the centre of our profession, then we've lost that truth that was handed down to us. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it. Cherish it. Honour it. And hold it up high. And allow that truth, Christ coming into the world to save sinners, allow that truth 
to be the truth that then influences the ways that you live. Allow that truth at the centre to affect the way you understand creation at the edges. Allow that truth at the centre affect the way you campaign against abortion laws. Allow that truth at the centre affect the way you use the environment that you live in or care for animals or whatever else it might be. But always maintain that truth at the centre. Protect yourselves, thereby protecting the church from any false philosophy that stands opposed to it.